Joshua chapter 1, from verse 1 to verse 9, and then we'll jump to chapter 3 and verse 2. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, And as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong. And very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Chapter 3. The Israelites have gathered at the edge of the Jordan, which is the border, between them and the promised land. And now the leaders of Israel have some things to say to them before they go in. Verse 2 through verse 4, we read, At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, with the Levitical priests carrying it, Then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be a distance between you and it, a distance, uh, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. By the way, that's a little over half a mile. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Well, may the Lord help us as we look at the whole issue of following God by using his map. Well, let's seek our king together. Let's pray. Our glorious God, we thank you for the things that we're allowed to sing about what we were and where we were and what we dreaded. And the great contrast between what a believer is now in him, where we are now, and what we 
happily anticipate. We pray that you would teach us today in such a way that gratitude and praise would be the fuel of every action, not one of them left outside of the great reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, rescuing us from that terrible destruction, the everlasting judgment, the reality of Christ bringing us out of the courtroom into the family room, that we can approach you and call you Father without fear of rebuke. It is all of you, our King, and we bow before you today and we lift our voices, our prayers, our songs. We open these Bibles and we want to go home and it to be a continuation of one great corporate statement. It's you. It's only you, our triune God. Everything that is good is of you. All of our redemption began with you before creation. All of it is aimed at your glory and all of it is sustained moment by moment, hour by hour, day after day, regardless of what the enemy does, regardless of what our conscience accuses us of, regardless of our weakness and distractedness, it is maintained and sustained by you. We come to you this morning not because we're people that have good theology and we're very spiritual and moral. We come to you rather because you have conquered our hearts. You have shown us our need and then shown us your son. You have given us what we never dreamed could ever be ours. Peace. A reason to get out of bed that isn't fake. God, we come to you this morning and we plead for others. There are so many, even in our little gathering here, who admire you from a distance and taste so little of the kindnesses that are offered, who stand and delay when there is everything they could possibly want when their desires are right and largest everything is in Christ so will you call their name will you free them from their enemy whose lies have blinded them with empty hopes of one day him treating them better than he has treated them every other day God, we pray that you would open their eyes to see your majesty, that you deserve their love and trust. Had there never been a redeemer sent, you deserve their obedience. But when we see Christ and we view you through the work of your son, God, what motive do we lack for running to you as quickly as we can? We pray for those across this tiny world that in their confusion of one sort or another have held you at arm's length. God, in mercy, send them truth and give them eyes to see the sunrise from on high. We pray that this would be done so that your will, your 
expressed will would be the delight of your people. That it would be done here as it is in heaven. God spread this kingdom and this extraordinary fame of Christ and use today everywhere for that purpose. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the life of a Christian, a follower of Christ, or a disciple of Christ. And so, just to remind you, every, every Christian who has ever been, or is, or will be, must essentially also be a follower of a person. And this person has not been on earth for 2,000 years. He is alive, ruling in heaven, but he has called you to follow him by faith with a book in your hand. And we're talking about discipleship, a, a lifelong apprenticeship where there is all authority in, in the hand of the one that is training you. And you gladly, because of trust and love, you gladly follow all he says to do. It's not merely going into a classroom so that we can gather the truths of the Bible together and understand what it says and what it means. That's important, but that's not enough. It's not merely adding certain religious things to your regular weekly calendar. Those are important, but that's certainly not enough. It's not enough to change the external things in your life so that they look much more like the people you go to church with now than before you came to the church that's not what we're talking about. At the heart of the Christian life, there is something that, is, that forms the soil, the root system of every one of the wonderful other things. And that root system, that soil, is a, a preoccupation with Christ. You are focusing on a person. You are depending on a person. You are yearning for and delighting in a person. He is the beginning of your Christian walk. He is the goal of the Christian walk. And he's, he's with you each step, enabling you to do the Christian walk. He also explains to us that it's by faith, by believing what God has revealed, that we hold our feet to the course and don't just drift in despair or in distraction. And faith is also the means by which God has given you to reach out an empty hand toward this great benefactor and to receive hour by hour, moment by moment, all that you need from him to walk this path. We live the Christian life, you know, kind of two feet on the path. Dependence, God, I need you. And yieldedness, God, I will obey you. Now we're turning to the path, and we're going to be looking at that in the coming weeks and probably months in this, in this you know, series on discipleship. And as we turn to the path, what we're asking ourselves is this. What exactly are the specific choices in a very practical way? What are the specific choices that make up a Christian's following a person 
that is not here for us to look at. So the following has to be real, but it's going to be in some ways different than when I follow someone that's just sitting next to me. If they say, perhaps, you can follow me home, you, you just you keep your eye on them and you do what they do. And essentially, that's the same for the Christian. But of course, there are differences. Exactly where is the path for following Jesus Christ? What makes up the average ordinary choices of life? I'm not talking about the big significant spiritual choices, but just the ordinary choices, the the hundreds of small decisions you make every day that you probably don't even notice you're making. How can they be part of discipleship to Christ? How can they be following Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is that while we are following a person, we are doing that using that person's map, which he has given us. And we'll be talking about that later this morning. But let me start by warning us. I think that there is a pretty consistent danger that we face. And here, us, so not we as in Christians in general. But because of the emphasis that we constantly make at the church, there, there is a way for the enemy to slip in. And as with any real truth of the Bible, there is always a counterfeit version of that truth or there's always an abuse of that truth that the enemy comes and he, he lays it right next to you and says, well, if that's true, then, and if you're not careful, he leads you off the path of obedience all the while, you think, no, no, I'm, I'm being very obedient. For example, in the book of Galatians, Paul has to write to that young church and say that you are free from the Old Testament laws as a means of making yourself right with God, of earning his love. Of, uh, you're free from the ceremonial law. Christ has fulfilled it. And you're free from the moral law in the sense of uh, the moral law being some kind of ladder you're going to climb up to God on. But then Paul has to warn them, doesn't he? He says, do not use that freedom for self-indulgence. Do not use your freedom that you have to live in a way that damages other Christians or sends a confusing signal. Free in Christ is a great truth. But it's one that the enemy will get you to abuse if you're not careful. Another example, Romans 6. We are alive from the dead. The old you is gone. A new you now lives. And not under the realm and rule of sin with an angry law. But now in the realm of grace. Where grace overabounds even the shame and the pollution of your sin. The sin that you commit today. As far as that guilt seems to spread in our soul and, you know, you go to God and you just feel, I I don't know that there's any edge to it. I, I feel it's such a terrible thing to sin against a God that has saved me, a God that I do know as my father. Why would I ever believe the enemy again? And Paul says his grace overabounds, goes beyond even that. And of course, the enemy then comes with uh, an abuse. If you're saved by grace and grace is magnified and enlarged, 
when you sin, then why not just sin? Because then people will be able to see how gracious, how merciful, how pitying your God is. And Paul has to say, God forbid. The proper application of being free in Christ is that you would wake up and devote yourself to him and your bodies to his service. Every truth has an abuse that we can not be aware of, and the more we see the preciousness of a truth, the more the abuse goes unseen. What I'm talking about with particular application to us is this. There is here at this church a a very definite effort. We fail, but it's the effort. There's a very definite effort to teach and to live on the fact that Christ is enough. That we don't need Jesus plus anything else as a church. And we don't need Jesus plus anything else as individuals or as families, as a nation. So we might say we want to be Christocentric, centered around Christ. We want all of our doctrines to be orbiting the glory of God in the face of his son. We want our ethics, you know, the right and wrongs, the do's and the don'ts, to be all attached to the greatness of his son. We want the way we treat each other, ultimately, not to be just an expression of love that we have for each other, but the love together that we have for his son. We want everything to be pointing us without distraction to Christ. We want to be a Christ-centered church. Well, that's the goal. Now, here's the danger, because I think that's a wonderful goal, and I think it's rooted in the truths of the Bible. But the danger is this, that the enemy will come alongside of us and say, that is such a wonderful thing you're doing, this Christ-centeredness. And now, as you talk about Christ-centeredness, and you hammer out how Christ-centeredness you know, it touches every aspect of the Christian life. As you get all the concepts of Christ-centeredness gathered together and kind of lined up in a way that makes sense, as you appreciate Christ-centered church and Christ-centered family or Christ-centered individual life, you've done a great job. You have arrived, and that was the end of the journey. So the problem, of course, is not with being a people that focus on Christ, the problem is that we are so tempted to think that if my heart is warm toward him and my desire is to please him, then whatever comes next is acceptable to God. If nothing comes next, that's okay. God knows I love him. If a life that doesn't match the scripture comes next, well, it's not best. But that's kind of okay, too, because God knows I'm imperfect, but I love him. I'm Christ-centered. I feel that danger constantly of genuinely appreciating what the Scripture says about our Lord, of finding him to be the most interesting thing about Christianity. If you take Christ away from Christianity, I would not show up at church next week. The phrase that we talked about from Romans, now to him. 
It is the phrase that's written over the Christian walk. It's the door we walk out of every morning when we wake up and we put our feet on the floor. Now, what's, what, what are you going to do today? I'm going to live to him. But then if I'm not careful, if you're not careful, what follows is not necessarily a life that he wants. But it's so hard to see because you're wanting him to be pleased with it. And you're wanting it to be a life that he would be pleased with, that he would want. And the now to him is a great phrase. But is it really a life that is Godward? Is it really a life that is following Jesus Christ? A simple question, a simple test to give ourselves. You can give it to yourself. I have to give it to myself. What are the concrete changes that you have made in 2023 as we have looked at Christ and at the theme of following Christ, of watching him, imitating him? Any concrete changes in your life? Small ones? I know that we don't always notice them, but are there any at all that you can say, these things have been changed in the way that our marriage is and these things have been changed in what we do at the house and these things have been changed in how I act at work and church. What is different about you because you have been looking at Christ? So I think maybe if I can describe this with a word picture, and then I would like to give you a number of reasons that it is impossible to be a follower of Jesus Christ without a map, all right? Without a very clear map. In fact, without the exact map that he had. And then we'll have some concluding points, and this is all leading to the coming weeks where we'll look at that map. So let me give you uh, maybe a word picture of what I'm concerned of, about. There is a danger of thinking that getting up tomorrow morning and going throughout your week with the idea of living for Jesus and the heart is full of feelings for Jesus and there really are very real intentions to live for Jesus and yet you go through the entire week with kind of a vague idea of what that would look like. So you go through the week feeling real love to Christ. I'm talking to the Christian. And you go through the week with an intention of living now to him. But when it comes to the hundreds of little choices, your guide is just vague feelings and good intentions. Or we could say your, your map is what you think would probably be the best thing to do in this situation, since you're a Christian. We wander through our week. We wander through the hundreds of conversations, the, the hundreds of hours, the thousands of little choices. And if we're not careful, our guide, though we think it is following Jesus, is actually following my idea of probably what's best for right now, what would be pleasing to him. 
Now, that is so common that it's really hard to see, isn't it? I mean, that is the Christianity we probably have grown up with. All around us, people that maybe go to church and read their Bible, and many of them are genuine believers, and they go to work, and they try to do their best to do what would please the Lord that week. I I want to be a good Christian person. But their guide is this vague sentimentalism or tradition. Well, that's what other people do who say they're Christians or what you think is best in the present moment. So I'm not describing a problem of a lost person who leaves the church building and cannot wait to finish the religion for the week. And the rest of the week, they do what they want to do because they're the biggest person they've ever met. I'm talking about the Christian who really does have good intentions and warm, grateful feelings, but not the right map. It is not discipleship. I think we could say it is a most dangerous form of religious deception. Let me give you a number of kind of arguments to drive that point home, and then we're going to look at how Christ is the cure to that. How does following Christ cure that problem? Well, one argument is that when we follow Jesus Christ, we are following the Lord or the owner and ruler of all things. And though he is in heaven, still the question could come to us today, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Now, I think no Christian would want to hear that. And ultimately, no Christian would. But it has to be clear to us, in being discipled by Jesus Christ, he is training you in very practical ways on the job training. He is training you, what is it that God wants you to do? What is it that God commands you not to do? And obedience is doing what God commands in his word. And disobedience is failing to do what God commands in his word. Now, there's a a kind of, I think, there's a red flag that jumps up for believers. And we say, wait, I thought that we are to be focused on a person. We'll talk about that in a minute. And I thought that love was the path for the Christian. Love is the path for the Christian. Love to God, love to men. Paul explains it. The law, all the moral law, so we're not talking about the ceremonies which have been fulfilled and set aside, but the moral law, the fundamental right things and the fundamentally wrong things which are rooted in the character of God and don't change because of the cross. Summed up in the Ten Commandments, but explained in specifics other than that. What God hates and what God loves, this expression in our Bible It is fulfilled when you love. So when you love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength, you know, not perfectly, but really, then you will find yourself fulfilling, obeying, keeping those commands which are Godward commands, the first half of the Ten Commandments. And when you really love the people that come across your path this week, You are fulfilling the laws of God, the commands of God, 
with regard to how you ought to treat other people. Love is the fulfillment. And if we forget that, then we can come to God's rules and we can make it all about us. I want to be a better person. I want to have a better marriage. I want my children to be the right kind of children. We want our church to be the right kind of church. And it has really nothing to do with really following Christ. It would be an abuse of the law. So love is the fulfillment. And another thing we think of when we think of obeying God's law and the importance of the externals and the internals is, well, love is fulfilling the law, yes. But how do we know what love looks like? I mean, there's so many circumstances that you'll face this week. How do you know how loving God looks in that circumstance? And the answer is that he has given that to you in his commands. And how do we know what loving our kids looks like or our neighbor, coworkers, church attenders? Well, he has given that in the principles and the, and the commands all through the Bible. When we think about how God thinks of things, we know that God treasures a heart that is obedient. And so motivation is important. I mean, over and over, Christ comes to the Pharisees who appear on the outside to be keeping all the rules. And he says to them, but none of it is worth anything. It's all nothing before God's face. Because your heart is not in it. Your mouth is close to God. Oh, I say so many things about my love to God. Your heart is far from God. You're going through the motions. You're you're doing what the Bible says to do externally in worship. But your heart is in love with idols. And over and over from Genesis to Revelation, there is no lack of example of the fact that for God, the condition of the soul, of the heart in any activity is primary. But it is not all there is to obedience. Having a heart full of the right motives does not equal obeying God. Having a heart full of gratitude to Christ and wanting to please Christ does not equal a life that pleases Christ. It does not equal righteousness. It is just so easy to become accustomed to that kind of meandering around with a a heart full of warm thoughts to my Lord, but not having the map. And so I'm not on the path of obedience, even though I think I am. Now, some examples from Scripture that help us with this. In 1 John... In 1 John, well, let me give you Christ's words first. In the life of Jesus, there are a number of times where he talks about judgment. And when he talks about judgment, basically, you know, he just shines the light in our lives and shows us this is real and this is just hypocrisy or false. So in Matthew 7, Christ says, I will declare to them, those who do not follow him, I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And then he describes them. What are their names? Depart from me, Pharisees. Depart from me, hypocrites. Depart from me, Jews. Depart from me, whatever. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. 
you who practice a life that while it may be very religious, there is no authority in your life higher than what you think would be the right thing to do at this present moment. And it's not just the outward things. In Matthew 23, again, he talks about the judgment to come and he says, you too, and he's talking to the Pharisees, you outwardly appear righteous to men. So the outside looks really good. But inwardly, you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Inside the heart, while you're doing all these religious activities and being very precise, inside the heart, there is not anything higher in your mind. There is no authority higher in your heart than what you want to do and what you think's right. And so they're in trouble. Paul and John talk about this as well. In 1 John 3, he says, everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So sin is not just not having the right attitudes and motives and yearnings and goals. Sin could be having all of that, but actually never doing anything, never living as a person with an authority above what we think would please God. In Titus chapter 2, Paul explains that one of the great reasons Christ came to rescue us was to rescue us from this self-directed, self-ruled, self-determining rebellion against a king. Titus 2 verse 14, Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, every deed done as if there isn't an authority higher than what I think is right, higher than what I would think would be best. He's come to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. And then he says, zealous for good works. Righteous living or following the righteous one, Jesus Christ, has to include that devotion of the soul to your Savior. My thoughts, my desires, my choices, those are devoted toward Him. But it must express itself in just simple, everyday obedience or walking by the map that He gives us. So whether it's a life of ignoring God's commands outwardly or of doing the outward things, but ignoring how God's commands touch the inward things, the lawless life is a doomed life. It's not the life of a disciple. Let me give you another argument that I think hope, I hope will help us. In Ephesians 2, if you have your Bible, turn there. Ephesians 2, it is, of course, that wonderful passage that says that we're saved by grace not of works, through faith, and even that's a gift. So obviously when we're reading Ephesians 2, I hope that we are free from the suspicion of saying, well, God loved you and got you started on the path, but now it's up to you to do all the rules so you can be a good person and reach the end. And keeping God's law keeps his love for you. 
Rule keeping, your rule keeping, doesn't rescue you. His rule keeping rescues you. And you receive that through faith. Verse 8, Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no man or that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. God's crafted you, Christian. Created in Christ Jesus. A new you, in a sense. Recreated in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Oh, that's a wonderful statement. Everyone that is calling upon God from a heart that is genuine, God, I am yours and you are mine, has been saved by an undeserved and very active love of God seen in the work of Christ. And you've been newly created for the purpose of good works, of obedience. And those works were actually laid out before you like a path before you were born. In Titus 2, remember Paul says that Christ gave himself to redeem us from lawless works to to purchase a people for himself who were zealous for good works. In Ephesians 2, he says, these good works are your purpose and God has prepared them beforehand. In Hebrews, there's even more. Chapter 13, let me read you verse 21. He prays that God would equip the Christians in every good deed or every good thing to do his will. That God would work in them that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. All of those sound wonderful. Created for good works. Rescued from the life where I was addicted to the wrong things. And now presently supplied in the superior new covenant with everything I need for God to be glorified by me living differently. Now, at the end of all those, there is still this question. Which good works? What good works? If you didn't own a Bible, how would you answer that? Would you say, well, I don't know. I think that God would want this. And you plan your life accordingly. I think God would not like these things. And how miserable it would be to really love your God. To be adopted into his family and to want, finally, want to live for someone other than yourself. And there would be no path, no map. And the whole of your life from that point forward is just you wandering about thinking, I hope this is what he wanted. It was pretty costly. I hope this is what he wants. I've been doing it for 20 years. It's such a kindness of the Lord that he also gives us the map as well as calling us to follow. Second Timothy, when Paul says to Timothy, he talks about these good works and he talks about where you find them explained In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is really hammering home to the young pastor that he has got to study and handle the word of God really carefully for himself and for the people that are being taught by him. And then he says this. He says, this word of God 
in this book, you will find all you need to be adequately equipped for every good work. Created for good works, supplied daily by Christ in the new covenant for good works, rescued for good works. The scripture explains the good works. It's the map. The Christian life of discipleship is not only a life that is enamored with the person of God. It is a life that in very practical ways delights to do what I was saved to do. And I I know that or don't know that according to how I handle the scripture. Let me give you another argument. Think of the metaphors that the Christian life is described with. And I mean, the Bible uses so many. I'll just give you a few. And it's the same Christian. It's the same life. It's just viewed from different angles. So sometimes the Christian life is described, and one of you prayed it this morning in our prayer, as walking in the light. That's a Christian life. Or faith working by love. That's the Christian life. Or living by him, with him, and for him. That's the Christian life. I'm not giving you all the verses, but it's like he says in Romans 14, you living for the one who lived and died for you. That's the Christian life. Or Ephesians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's you being compelled and constrained, so propelled forward on a path and held to that path by the love of Christ for you. That's the Christian life. It is being a person who has a new ambition to please someone other than yourself, to please Christ. It is a person who is still doing a lot of the things they did before, the everyday stuff of life, but now you're doing it all for someone else, all as unto the Lord, and you're doing it by the strength which the Lord supplies. That's the Christian life, or as we've been talking about for months, It's following him. All of those are wonderful. None of those are any more than religious fiction if we don't have the map. How does a person walk in light? Specifically, if you didn't own a Bible, how would you know it? How does faith work by love? If you don't have a Bible, how would you know what it is? Where do you put your feet when you say, I'm walking with him and by him and for him? You see the the problem we come into. We end up just kind of wandering about with good intentions that Jesus will know that I love him and he will be pleased with the decisions I'm making. Let me put it another way. If we really, genuinely want to please the God that we love, but we neglect the tool he gives us to know what those specific choices look like, then our Christianity is really no better than the religion of the Jews in the time of the judges, who over and over, while saying they love God and having Bibles and going to the right church, they repeatedly make such bad decisions, even the spiritual leaders, that it's shocking to read the book of Judges. It's not a pleasant book to read. 
And the reason that they make all these bad choices is the same for every one of them. The book sums it up. It begins and it ends with this. That they did these things because they were doing what was right in their own eyes because there was no king in the land. Although there was a king, God, but no human king. So they just did what they thought would be the best thing for godly people to do. And oftentimes it was quite the opposite. I'll give you a quick sampling. Gideon, he's one that we all know. What a wonderful picture of a believer. Gideon is courageous and Gideon does what the Lord says and he stands against idolatry and he fights against an army so much larger than his little band of 300 men. And at the end of this great battle, Israel comes up and they say, hey, Gideon, why don't you let us take some of this gold and, and we'll just give so much to you. And by the way, would you like to be our king? And Gideon says, I would not think of being your king. We already have a king. The Lord is our king. And he accepts just a small portion of the gold. So far, so good. But then at the end of his life, we read that he takes some of that gold and he makes a little idol out of it, an ephod, a religious article of clothing. But it becomes an idol and it says that it became a stumbling block to Gideon and to his family and to all of Israel. Gideon, at the end of his life, makes an idol after risking his life to bring the people out of bondage that idolatry took him into. Which is worse? To freely wake up in the morning and lead your family to worship an idol and the whole nation or to wake up in the morning and have to give all your food to Midianites? Well, the idol is much worse. It's the reason the Midianites were there in the first place. And... As he gets old, he gets a concubine. He has a lot of wives and a lot of kids, but that's not enough. So he gets a girlfriend on top of all of that. And he has another kid and he names him Abimelech. And Abimelech was a real rotter. All right? He was as bad as they come. Murdered off all of his siblings so he could be king. Do you know what Abimelech means? Abimelech in, in the Hebrew. My father the king. Be our king, Gideon. No, no, I would never be king. God is our king. Years later, with his girlfriend, he has a baby and he names it. Name him, my dad's the king. How can Gideon be okay with those choices? Idolatry and, and then immorality and then say, my dad's the king is my son's name because Gideon was doing what was right in his own eyes. One that's so obvious is Samson. He's bad from the beginning, it seems. His parents are told exactly how to raise him. They do what the Lord says. And to their utter you know, horror, their astonish, astonishment, their grief, when he becomes a young man, he looks around and he sees a beautiful Philistine girl. This is not Delilah. This is just the beginning of his immorality. And he says, I want to marry that one because... She looks good in my eyes. It's not just she's pretty. It's this is what I think is right to do. It's the same Hebrew as the other places. It's what's right in my own eyes. And the parents say, can't you find a pretty girl from the Jews who worships the real God and not a Philistine who worships Dagon? And he says, it is right in my eyes. 
And it's the beginning of that sad life of Samson, even though God used him to rescue Israel. Certainly it was a bitter story. Think of Jephthah. Jephthah is the son of a man named Gilead and of a prostitute. Gilead, Gilead had a lot of wives and a lot of kids. Then he went and got a prostitute at the end of his life. And he had a son named Jephthah. And all the rest of the family didn't really want Jephthah, the son of the prostitute, hanging out with them at the family gathering. So they, they basically run him out of town. And he grows up in a place called Tob. Tob is a wicked place. It's a place right on the border with all the other nations. And it's a place where idolatry has been for a long time. So here he is. He lives a life where the worship of God is so polluted with the way that the idol worshipers worship their idols that when God uses him to rescue, and he is in the book of Hebrews, he's a believer, when he trusts God and he's used to rescue Israel and he makes this great promise, God, I will give you the first thing that comes out of my house as a sacrifice. When his daughter comes out, he sacrifices her. And you think, how in the world can you think that that's what would please the Lord? Well, is it because he grew up in an area of Israel on the border with pagan nations and all the religion he saw was influenced by the pagan religion? So he did, in his mind, he gave the ultimate sacrifice. He did what would probably please the Lord, he thought. We could go on and on. They did what was right in their own eyes. How is following Christ a cure to that? For us, kind of wandering around, doing what's right in our own eyes this week. Well, following Christ, discipleship, it is following a person. It is a life that is lived by him, with him, for him. He is the attraction, not the rules, not the map, not what it provides. But how do you follow a person that's not here physically and hasn't been here for 2,000 years? It reminds me of the opening account in Judges, sorry, in Joshua that we read, where God commands Joshua to study the scriptures carefully so he'll know what pleases the Lord and he'll lead the people well. But then right after that, he also says, now as we're about to cross into this new land, go tell all the tribes, stay half mile back, but keep your eye on the Ark of the Covenant, which the Levites are carrying. And when, when they go across the Jordan River, we know that God dried up the river and the Israelites followed, but make sure you go where the ark goes. So just keep your eyes on that. Go wherever it goes. And then the answer is, or the reason given is, you've never been this way before. You, know, you, don't, you don't know this territory. You've never gone this path. So just watch the ark. Pretty simple. Christian, what a wonderful description for us. I'm a follower of Christ. I do love that person. I want to express my love to him in a way that he wants to be loved. But I've never been, you know, in July of 2023 before. I've never been on in tomorrow morning before, but I'll soon be in tomorrow morning. And how will I know how to follow him now? And the answer is to keep your eyes on that ark. Well, on Christ, yes. How do I see Christ? He gives you a map. What is the map? 
Well, there's the example of Jesus in the Gospels. Where over and over we read things like, I have not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or, my food, which you know nothing about yet, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. As an infant, we see the parents taking Christ to the temple to be circumcised. Why? To fulfill all the requirements of God's law. But as soon as we see him next in scripture at age 12, we hear him saying, did you not know that I must be about my father's things? That, that, it, that that's what my life is about? Later, the book of Hebrews explains that Psalm 40 was actually talking about Christ when it says, I have not come to give, you know, animal sacrifices, but Christ is the sacrifice. And he says, I have, I delight to do your will. Psalm 40, verse six, seven, and eight. Your law is in my heart. When we look at the life of Christ and this complete dedication and the fact that the will of the father, there was no rival to that will in the heart of the son to walk in harmony with the father was the greatest delight of the son in the life of Jesus. You finally see in a human living a life like you have to live in a world like you live in. You finally see someone where the duty and the obligation of obedience is perfectly matched by a wholehearted delight. And he is free to run the paths that God has placed before him. When you read, especially in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says things like, I can do nothing on my own initiative, it's a moral impossibility. I would never wake up and just say, what do I want to do with life today? Tomorrow, I'll serve the Father again. When you read those passages, do you only think of the cross and of doing miracles and which city I'm supposed to preach in tomorrow? 33 years he lived on our earth. 30 years he is hidden away, so to speak, as a private person. Three years, public ministry. I think that every description of Jesus when he says, I have not come to do my will, but the will of the Father. My food is to do the will of the Father. I must be about the Father's will. I have come to do your will. It's written of me in the book. I delight to do your will. It's in my heart. I think that every one of those statements applies to every one of those years, not just the last three. That means 10 out of 11 years for Jesus of Nazareth where he's not doing public ministry. He is waking up every day of those 10 out of 11 years, delighting to do the Father's will, there to do the Father's will. The heart wholly united with the will in accomplishing the Father's will. And that is found in Scripture. So we have the example of Jesus And we have the map of Jesus. Following Jesus of Nazareth is not, you know, it's not rocket science. It's just so wonderfully costly. It it costs everything. You have handed yourself over to your Savior. He has given you himself. And in giving you himself, he has given you everything. And now you wake up and say... Now to him. Okay, but but what does that look like? 
Oh, it means following his example. But the Gospels don't record everything he did. And even the epistles, they're written to churches with specific problems. So oftentimes the emphasis is more limited. How do you know what it looks like to follow Jesus between 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Monday mornings when you're chasing kids around or you're answering the phone? In those thousands of little choices that the Gospels or even the epistles have not described. And the answer is, he gave you the map. And when you see the map, you see it's all rumpled and folded and old. It's a couple thousand years old. It's, it's the commands of God. It's the Old Testament. It's where God explains who he is. And then he illustrates it in so many different ways with songs and prayers and prophecies. But at the heart of that, the specific moral commands. This is what pleases me. This is what I will never accept. That's the path that Christ walked. Loving his father, he put his feet on the path of obedience to all those moral laws. And you follow Christ. What does Christianity look like? Well, it looks like a group of people because we're not doing it individually, but we'll talk about that next week. Walking arm in arm down a path. The path they're choosing is the one that they see in this book. And so as they're walking and going along and helping each other, they look at the book and they see in it a map. And the map shows me where to put my feet next. But my heart and my face are toward Christ. For love of Christ, leaning on Christ, hoping in Christ, I submit to Christ. I take the pattern of Christ. And that means the map that Christ used, which is so wonderfully illustrated in the Gospels and explained in the epistles. If you think that taking the law of God, the moral law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, if you think that that is the highest form of legalism, for a Christian, because you've misread the New Testament, I would say you are dead wrong to quote Clyde Cranford in his book, Because We Love Him. It is not the highest form of legalism. It is the highest expression of love. I want to please my king. I'm not earning his love, but this is the only way that I can show him love back. I dedicate myself to him. And he explains what that looks like. Now, let me give you one last key point. If that's what we want, if we want to follow Christ, his example, his teachings, the apostles who explain all of that, but it must also include the moral law of God, which he himself followed. We see his footprints in the dirt in front of us. If we want to follow Jesus Christ, it will be impossible unless you have the right map and you read the map and you follow the map. Without the map of God's commands, with all that else that I've mentioned around them, then I think the only other options we have, we have three other options that are very popular. I've mentioned them many times already this morning. There's the map of sentimentalism. That is, I just feel that this is what God would be happy with. So 
I do what I feel. I kind of live by my Christian moods. And that's pretty hit or miss. Or there's the map of Christian tradition. And depending on which Christian tradition you grew up in, it's better or worse, more or less biblical. And so you may have grown up in a place where the older believers around you gave a pretty clear picture of the happy life of obeying God. But that's not the map. That's helpful. But it's hit or miss. Or you can be superstitious. And what I mean by that is that you can be very spiritual. You're a spiritual person. And spiritual realities are always in the back of your mind, whatever decision you make. But it is not a spirituality guided by the word of God. And so it just kind of becomes this wandering and talking religious. If you are going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must give real work to studying your Bible to see what it says and to understand what it means by what it says. And you cannot be a Christian who goes around their entire life asking directions of whoever you bump into. I mean, before smartphones, and if you left your map at home, you kind of had to do that, didn't you? You would say, I think it's kind of this direction. And you would drive, and then you see a gas station, you pull over, you run in, say, am I headed the right direction? I'm looking for such, oh, they say, no, no. You need to go back three miles. So you go back, and then you see a person on the side of the road. Maybe they're mowing their grass. You pull over. You roll down your window, and you try to get their attention. Is this the, oh, yeah, you're just a little short. Go turn here. And you can't live the Christian life like that. Christ's well-worn map, his Bible, is in your hands. And we're not obeying it from legalism, but from love. We want to pull together in the coming weeks all that we've been saying about discipleship and bring it all to bear on these commands and say, well, how, as a lover of Christ, saved by grace, how would that affect the way I approach the map? We have one more week of introductory stuff, uh, like my sermons, uh, the sermon series tend to be like half introduction, but... We do have one more week. I want us to look at the fact that we are walking together, not just as individuals. But we'll save that for next week. Toward the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes these words. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he will also bring it to pass.